Hey guys, glad you're joining us uh, this weekend. And if I've never had the chance to meet you, I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're tuning in. Hopefully this will be a blessing to you. I'd uh, love to hear from you. We always love getting email, hearing how you're doing, what God's doing in your heart. If this is your first time checking it out, why don't you email us? Let us know who you are, where you're from. Uh, but I'm glad that we can come into your living room or kitchen or wherever you're watching or listening to us. We're in this series. And the series we're in is Culture, Clichés, the Story of God. Here's what we're saying. That culture is this like soup or this stew that we live in. And there's things in this stew, this culture, that form kind of the basic lens through which we look at life. This narrative, it's kind of how we kind of make sense of our life or how we justify our existence. Uh, this cultural stew gets stirred and all of a sudden some of the big questions of life get answered, right? Purpose of life, meaning of life, the big why of life. All of those things are part of this cultural stew. We, we've said this each week uh, that it starts early and uh, some of the things in that cultural stew that gets stirred around, inconsequential, they're irrelevant, right? Some of those things that are very consequential, very relevant. And here's what we have alluded to is that there are a lot of ingredients in that stew, right? Just like soup, right? Just ingredients in it. And there's a lot of people who contribute to it, right? Your family contributes to what gets poured into the stew that makes up the lens through which you look at life. You just know that, right? Your mom and dad, you grew up in a strict home or not so strict home. Your mom and dad told you certain things, didn't tell you certain things, right? It gets part of that stew and all of a sudden becomes part of the reality. Your siblings add to that. Your friends add to that. Uh, not only do your relationships contribute to that, but, but your experiences, the things you experience in, or don't experience in life, the places you grow up, the part of the country you're from. Uh, I was guardian uh, for a year <laughs> for a young man who lived in the inner city of Chicago. Uh, he got in trouble with the gangs and so on and so forth. And so I was living down in Indiana and uh, I became his legal guardian for a year. And I, uh, I remember uh, I used to work, uh, you know, third shift, but on nights that I was off, I, remember I was in my room sleeping and in the middle of the night, like I, I woke up and you ever wake up and so, you feel a presence, like somebody's there. And uh, I woke up and all I saw were two eyes, right? And, and, and this young man, he was like all of 17, 16, 17 at the time. He's in my room and it like scared me. To, I'm like, what's wrong? You know? And he says, Dan, I'm afraid. And I'm like, afraid of what? He said, I'm afraid of the quiet. He was used to the noise of the city, right? It was just part of the stew he grew up in. It's like, I'm used to things going on and noise and gunshot, whatever it was. And he said, I'm afraid of the quiet. That's part, wherever you grew up, part of the stew, right? Your experiences, your education, uh, where you went to school, what you were taught, even your religious kind of background, that's part of the stew. And, and part of the stew that it forms in us is our beliefs about people, about God. Uh, the first week we talked about our beliefs about God, Pastor Aiden led us in that. Last week we said, well, we have this basic belief about people, you know, and we said a lot of us believe people are mainly good. But is that really the story of God? That, that gets mixed into the stew. Uh, I would say another part is even what the Bible says. And, 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 you know, what does the Bible actually teach? For instance, there's things you grow up and you think the Bible says because somebody told you that's what the Bible says. And so you just assume that's what the Bible says. And so if the Bible says it, well, that must be what God says, right? And so because somebody you trust said that's what the Bible says. For instance, uh, my mom's favorite thing to say was this. I always thought it was in the Bible, right? Cleanliness is next to, oh, you've heard it too, right? Godliness, right? I mean, she'd be like, Danny, go clean your room. And then she'd quote the Bible. Cleanliness is next 
to godliness. I'm like getting a concordance, a little thing. I'm trying to find it, right? It's like, where in the world is that in the Bible? And I found it. It's in like Second Organizations 2.9, right? I, mean, I don't know where it's at. It's not in there. I'm like, thanks, mom. Like, like she's saying that she's quoting it like a Bible verse, so I'll go clean my room, right? Or, or there's other things, you know? Like you ever hear somebody say, God won't give you more than you can handle? You ever hear that? Like usually when you're going through a hard time, like, oh, don't worry, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's like, Oh, where's that at in the Bible? You like start looking around, like, well, it's not in there. And actually, sometimes there's things that happen, like, I just can't handle, right? Like, there's something about when somebody says something, like, wow. I was thinking about this and thinking about things that we attribute to the Bible. And I came across this article back in 2011. Uh, there was this heated jobs bill debate going on, and the president gave a speech. Right, Just like we see some, this happens all the time. He gave a speech and he said, while Congress ignored, he, he set a bill before them, they ignored his jobs bill the day before. What he said was that that same Congress, they affirmed the motto, in God we trust. And so the president went on to say at that time, he said, that is not putting people back to work. He says, I trust in God, but God wants to see us help ourselves by putting people back to work. Now, what's interesting is a follow-up to the speech, as is normal, his press secretary was asked by a reporter, and I quote, isn't it a bit much to bring God into a jobs debate? His press secretary replied, well, I believe the phrase from the Bible that says this, the Lord helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? Here's the phrase that we're going to look at today. It's kind of a cultural cliche. It's part of in the super. God helps those who, yeah, you've heard it, right? In fact, certainly that's in the Bible. It feels like that should be in the Bible. Like that just feels right. I mean, particularly in our country, like that's the American way. And if it's not in the Bible, it ought to be in the Bible. In fact, I would say this, studies show this, 80% of Americans, one study says that Barna did, 80% of Americans believe that's in the Bible. Even some Americans believe it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? God, help, I don't, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, but you might be like, well, 80% of Americans. Uh, that same research, Barna Research, uh, says that over 50% of people who would say they're Christians believe that that phrase is in the Bible. And the reason we want that phrase to be in the Bible is because we want to counteract laziness, entitlement, Right? Uh, we we want to counteract. Don't just pray for a job. Go, yeah, get one. Uh, don't just look for a handout. Go work for it. And and the Bible certainly speaks to such things, right? I can remember my dad. He used to like to go to Proverbs six, right, when I was a teenager. Like, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Imagine that as a teenager. Like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> when will you get up from your sleep? As soon as I'm done sleeping. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcely. My dad loved that verse, right? Uh, or, or we said this 2 Thessalonians 3.10 a few weeks ago, for when you we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. It's like, okay, I mean, those, those things are in the Bible. But this idea of God helps those who helps themselves, is that in the Bible? Is that, is that from the, the, the word of God? Here's the short answer. I'm going to give you the short answer right up front. It's like, no. <laughs> no. Like, look at that verse, you're not going to find it. 
This is not in there. In fact, this may surprise you. It more than likely originated in some ancient literature. You ever hear of Aesop's fable? When you read Aesop's fable, that's probably where it started, where he begins to tell about a wagoneer who was driving and got stuck in the mud. And, and the, the harder he tried to get out of the mud, the stucker he got. <laughs> and so he prays to Hercules, great Hercules, please help me, please help me. And, and the story goes that Hercules came and said, don't sprawl there, get up, put your shoulder on the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. Uh, the one who made it popular in our particular context is more than likely Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin used this and poor, it's, it is a motto in his Poor Richard's Almanac in the 1700s. And he says, God helps them who helps themselves, 1733. Uh, this is a statement that this may surprise you that probably didn't just originate there and show up. Ben Franklin kind of popularized it, but it's a statement that its sentiments are actually in some other religious documents, namely the Quran. And when you look in the Quran, it literally says, indeed, Allah will not change the conditions of a population until they change what is in themselves. God helps those who help themselves. I like, like there is a danger in thinking this is from the Bible and that danger is this, that if I think this is in the Bible, I just assume it's in the Bible, then I'm going to accept that this somehow the heart of God is God helps those who help themselves. And there's implications to that that might lead me to wrong conclusions. You see, the short answer is this, God doesn't, that's not in the Bible. Well, then what is in the Bible? Well, let's just tell you what's in the Bible and then show you a passage. Can we do that? Here's what the Bible says. God actually loves to help those who can't help themselves. That's what the Bible calls grace. Like, like the story, I don't think you can understand the fabric of the Bible and the story of God found in his word if you don't understand that God actually is an expert in helping people who can't help themselves. He loves to help people who can't help themselves. The theological term for that is grace. It's the name of our church. I love that, right? And grace is just receiving what I can't earn, what I don't deserve. Grace is God doing for me what I can't do for myself. Grace is God accomplishing for me what I couldn't accomplish on my own. Grace is God giving me what I do not deserve. And at the core of the story of God, and I would even say at the core of the essence and nature of who God is, is a God who helps people who cannot help themselves. Guys, that is what makes good news good. And I don't think you're going to understand the good news of the story of this book if we don't understand that. And to not start here is to end in wrong places. You're like, is this really that important, Dan? It's to end in wrong places spiritually, in my relationship with God, socially, how I look at other people, how I'm going to view God, myself, and others. So let me just show you the story of God, tease it out, and then tell you some implications. Can we do that just for a few minutes? Uh, if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. And I want you to go chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, begin verse 1. Let's read the whole thing and then let's break it down, make some observation, and then go some implication. Okay? Here's what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. <clears throat> like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a passage, if your Bible is open, that you ought to have underlined, put a marker here, uh, dog ear it. This passage is so pivotal. And, the, and this passage is all about God's grace. And, and this passage teaches us some important things. When it comes to a God who loves to help those who can't help themselves, grace, here's what this passage tells me. It is by grace that we are saved and it's through faith through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by grace. It's not something I do. I can't even help this process. It's grace. God giving me what I can't do on my own. God giving me what I don't deserve on my own. It's grace. By grace, we're saved. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. Well, just look back at the passage and let me take it phrase by phrase. Look at how he starts. He says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We talked about this last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week, go back and rewind, right? Because it's a two-parter. This goes with last week. He says we're dead. Spiritually speaking, when it comes to my relationship, I am dead in my sin. There is nothing I can do to help myself. Without Christ, I'm not simply just spiritually sick. Without Christ, I'm spiritually dead. Uh, I've, I've used this uh this illustration, I don't know, but but when you go to a funeral, uh, I remember being at my dad's funeral, they dressed him up. He had his best suit on. They combed his hair. They brought us in as a family and said, is that exactly how? Yeah, but no matter how we dressed up my dad, he was still what? Yeah, dead. He was dead. Dead is dead is dead is dead. Like, I, I, I could talk to my dad. He wasn't going to talk back. I say, hey, dad, you want to throw the football? He's not going to throw I'm like, hey, dad, you want? He could. He, why? He's dead. He was dressed up. Looked great. Best suit on. Looked great. But he was dead. Spiritually speaking, there's nothing I can do to help myself. Paul goes on and says this. Not only were you dead, but you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Paul says, I'm not just dead, but I'm deceived. Like the spirit of, of this age is deceiving me, and so I'm disobedient. I'm listening to the wrong voices, is all I'm saying. It's true, right? I'm just listening to the wrong voices. It's easy to think of all the terrible things in our world and believe, you know, Satan's at work and the deception of Satan. But one of the greatest deceptions of Satan right now happens in churches that are full of people who believe God only helps those who help themselves.
It's interesting, isn't it? That's what he's saying. He says, God, when it comes to my relationship with God, God doesn't simply help those who help themselves. I don't simply need a spiritual tune-up. I'm dead. I'm deceived. I'm disobedient. And then he says this, like the rest, <laughs> we were by nature deserving of wrath, God's judgment. He said, I'm dead. I'm deceived. I'm disobedient. And I deserve God's wrath. I deserve judgment. You see that? Like, I, Can we pass that verse? <laughs> I'd like to just go past that. He says, like the rest. Like the rest of who? Well, in particular, who Paul is talking about, he's talking about the Gentile pagans, people who don't even acknowledge and believe God. He says, just like them. He's like talking to church people, and he's saying, just like them. Them, you know, them people. You know what I'm talking about. Those people, right? Who, who do those things and think them their things. He says, like the rest. Like, that doesn't sound very politically correct, does it? In a world that sounds, in our world, that just sounds offensive, particularly if I believe people are basically good. I mean, certainly God grades on a curve, right? And I must be above average. Here's the deal. I mean, verses one through three is like, woo! And I would suggest this, until I identify in the community of the, the totally depraved, dead deceived, deserving community, grace will never make sense to me. It'll never pop. I'll just think God helps those who help themselves. He, he, he draws a picture like, I can't even help myself. I'm, I'm spiritually dead. No matter how dressed up I am, no matter how good I look, dead. But look where he goes, verse four. If you write in your Bible in Yada, he says, but... That doesn't sound like a very significant word, but I'd circle it. I'd highlight it. I love when that's in the Bible because he says, but because of his great love for us. I love this because that but is in there. Write this down somewhere. There's no slide for it, but grace is simply God's love budding into my deep need. Just write that down somewhere. That's how I think of it. It's in my, that's what grace is. It's God's love butting in to, to my deep need. I love the fact that butts there. God sees what I deserve and he says, you deserve the worst, but he butts in so I can experience the best. Why? Why does God do this? Well, I mean, I'm kind of an impressive guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, kind of deserve it. I've done some, you know. Huh. Because he loves me. Not because I impress him. Not because I deserve it, earn it. His love just butts into my life at just the right time. God loves to help those who can't help themselves. And then it goes on and says, but because of his great love for us, look, it's God who is rich in mercy. God's grace is rich in mercy. God's overflowing with unlimited amounts of mercy. Grace means this. My sin never wrote a check his mercy couldn't cash. I'll write that down, right? He, he, God, my sin never wrote a check that his mercy couldn't cash. Uh, some of you are sitting here, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, then you don't know what I've done. You're taking inventory. You're like, my life's a wreck. And you're like, I've written a lot of, I, my sin and my life has written a lot of checks. I got a lot of outstanding debt. 
And I'm here to tell you something. God, who is rich in mercy, whatever you've, whatever you're thinking about, you have not written a check he, that, that his mercy can't cash. You see, the gospel and grace is this, that when Jesus died, God emptied the account. He emptied his mercy. He said, that's what I want to be poured out on you. The story of God is this God who's richer than I think in mercy. Don't underestimate how rich God is in mercy. And he goes on. I just want you to see this. And he made us alive with Christ when we were dead. I think that's interesting. Grace does for me what I can't do for myself. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Say it with me out loud. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Okay, God helps me because I cannot help myself. If I don't understand that, I won't understand grace. I won't understand the gospel. I was dead. He makes me alive in Christ. I do not need a moral renovation. I need a spiritual resurrection. That is different. That's what I need. That's what you need. A dead person can't help themselves. Much of religion is about moral re renovation. It's about behavior modification. It's about, hey, refine yourself. Ten steps to being a better you, right? Christianity is about spiritually dead people being made alive in Christ. I'm not just sick. I'm dead, and I am dead. He makes me alive. God loves to help those who can't help themselves. God seems to love to help those who will humbly admit they can't help themselves and that they need help and who will humbly acknowledge and accept his help found in Christ. That's the story of the Bible. That's why it says this then. It says, made us alive when, in Christ. It is by, say it with me out loud. Let's just say it out loud. If people are listening. If you're in the cafe, just say it out loud. It is by grace you have been saved. Get on verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved. Then look what he says, through faith. Faith in who? Jesus. What he's done. Not from yourselves. It is the gift, not because you helped it out, of God. Without Christ, I'm in deep weeds. But in Christ, I am a trophy of grace. Hey, let me show you this quick picture. I would say this, for a lot of us, this is how, how, how we see. Religion says this, how can I get to God? How can I take the steps so that I can become acceptable, okay with God, maintain kind of my relationship with God? That's what religion, how do I get to God? Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says instead God reverses that and God in Christ became a man. Why? So that he, the one who lived a perfect life, could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves he came to rescue us. He came to save us. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. Why? Because that's the only way for a spiritually dead person to be made alive. Why? Because he is a gracious God who wants to give to me what I can't do on my own and what I don't even deserve. That's the gospel. Guys, that's the gospel. God loves to help those who can't help themselves. H have you ever said yes to Jesus? Are you trying to work your way up those staircases to get to God? He came because he loves you. You. All the things you're thinking about, all the things, there is nothing you've done that his mercy 
can't somehow cover in Christ. Now, it doesn't stop there. I've got to show you this because I want to get to the implications. Verse 6, I'm just going to take you right through the passage. This is a powerful passage. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This part gets skipped a lot, and it shouldn't. Why does he do that? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. It's all about grace. Expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Write this down somewhere on your notes. By grace, we're seated with Christ. We're saved by grace, but that's not the end of the good news. I'm seated, and it's past tense, with Christ. I'm not sitting with him physically right now. You're like, Dan, you're kind of standing right there. You're not seated. You're like, I get it. What he's talking about is legally and positionally, I'm seated with Jesus. Uh, in, in the culture in which they live, when a general would have conquered and won a victory and the war was over, he would have been seated in a seat of honor. And that seat of honor would have identified to everybody, he won, you're free, victory is secure. It was the seat of honor. The war was accomplished, done. What Paul is saying, and, and, and so it, I legally, positionally, am seated with Christ. Uh, think about it this way, people who, uh, we just had an election, people who won positions, they won the seat of, right? They're not always sitting in a seat, but that seat of represents, they have a position of authority, they have a position, it represents something. This is a picture that the victory is won, that my salvation and security and identity are secure. Let's go back and let me show you this picture. Here's what the gospel says, that Christ came to rescue me. Christ came to rescue me. He died for me, but he rose again. And when I say yes to Jesus, literally, positionally, I am seated with him. That what he won and what he accomplished, I now can embrace. Do you understand even what that means? That when I say yes to Jesus, there's security. I am seated with Christ. Why does he say seated? Because I don't need to be, the, the work's done. I'm seated. The work is done that secures my forgiveness, invites me into the family of God. The key word in the gospel is what he's done, not what I do. I had this little quote that I found uh, in some of my notes. Maybe I'll throw it up here on the screen for you. It says, I can stop working to get into God's good graces and start trusting God's work, the work Jesus did, to get his good grace into me. Wow, that's, I, I love that, right? Some of us are working to get into God's good graces, but what he's saying, you know, there's a security. There's an identity. I'm not, I'm not who I once was, but I am who he says I am. I'm a trophy of grace. I'm a child of God. There's victory. I'm seated with Christ. Think about this. The idea is of this general sitting in the seat, victory. I'm, I'm seated with Christ, and under my feet is the enemy. Who's the enemy? Satan. I don't have to lead a defeated life. Earlier in, in Ephesians, I just want to show you this. Paul was praying for this group, and he says this, verse 19. He's talking about the power that's at work in them as followers of Christ. He says, that power at work in you is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I'm seated with that Christ. I don't need to live defeated. 
I'm seated in the seat of victory with the one who defeated Satan. I'm with him. He defeated Satan and the demonic forces. I'm sitting with Jesus and literally dangling under my little feet, right? Is the one he defeated? That's powerful. By grace, we are seated with Christ. Not because we, hey man, look at what I did to get there. It's not, I'm with him. He won the victory. And then Paul ends this way, and, and, and I want to show you this, and then make some implications. For we are God's handiwork, or some of your versions might say masterpieces. Now, the actual Greek word is poema. Poema. Say that out loud. Poema. Now you know some Greek, right? It's where we get the word poem, poetry. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? So, so we are God's masterpiece, his, his handiwork, his poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just write this down. Because of grace, we serve as God's masterpiece, his handiwork, his, his poema. C.S. Lewis said, we are, we are a divine work of art. What's interesting to me, and, and this is a different sermon probably, but the only other time that word is used in the New Testament that I could find is in Romans 1. There's this interesting verse in, in Romans 1. We'll throw it on the screen here for you. It says, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Like you can tell things about God being understood from what has been made. Poema, masterpiece, his handiwork, so that people are without excuse. He's like, you can look at creation and tell things about God. What Paul is saying is you can look at people who've embraced grace, people who God has helped who couldn't help themselves, and what you can tell by looking at them is some of the things that are true about God. That's interesting to me. It's the only two times I can tell these words are used. We are God's masterpieces. By grace we are saved, by grace we are seated, and because of grace we serve as his poema, his masterpiece. He is crafting each new stanza in this grand poem of grace called my life. That's how I read this. And my, the poem of my life gets to point to the author of grace. When I understand God helps those who cannot help themselves, I realize that my life is a poem where both my strengths and my weaknesses serve as this beautiful poetic cadence that point to his robust grace. Strengths and weaknesses alike. And when I realize this, that he is the poet, I realize that he uses pain, he uses problems, he'll even use other people to write this wonderful poem of grace. The successes we enjoy in sync with the disappointments we endure to create a rhythmic melody of a story of grace that is surprising. This relentless, robust grace. Disappointments many times open a stanzas of God's sufficient and surprising grace that is there in times of need and hurt. Successes pointing to his robust grace that uses the most undeserving of people. Every stanza of my life, an opportunity to bring further attention to the God whose grace has been gifted to me. Our lives are simply working out what the master poet is working into us as each line represents the author of grace. By grace we are saved through faith. 
by grace we are seated with Christ, and because of grace we are his poema, his masterpiece. Guys, listen to me. I'm going to tell you. God loves to help those who, quite frankly, cannot help themselves. That is the thread, the essence of the story of God. That's what makes the good news good. So for the next few minutes, can we just do this? What are the implications of this? Can we just make a few? You spend the rest of your week teasing out further implications. Can I just make a few? And you don't even have to agree with all my conclusions. But I think they're worth thinking about. Because some of you are sitting there with a tension, like, but man, if God, if, if, if it's not true that God helps those who help themselves, like, that's going to give people a lot of license to get away with a lot. I understand that. But actually, this idea of grace and the fact that God loves to help those who can't help themselves is actually the antidote, the medicine for those things that you're afraid of. I don't know what you're afraid of. You're afraid of something that if this is not true, that, that, that if God actually helps those who can't help themselves is true, that, then you're afraid, well, that might let people be justified in some things. Let me show you three things, and then you spend time teasing out other things. Grace this is the antidote to legalistic conservatism. I'm not talking politically necessarily. I'm just talking conservatism, religiously, however. But it's also the antidote to some liberalistic licensure. Or you could even write pluralistic liberalism, you know? However you want to write it. Legalism says this, I can earn and keep God's approval by what I do. But license says it doesn't matter what I do. God accepts everyone no matter what they do and how they live. And I can be a Christ follower. And some of you are afraid of that. Like, well, man, people might just think they can get away with whatever. Legalism, here's what legalism thinks. God helps those who help themselves. License thinks God helps those who just are themselves. The gospel and grace is the antidote. It says God helps those who can't help themselves. And grace says those who are themselves need help. Do you, do you see this? Like we like to get in camps and get on platforms and we like to, right, we like to give labels to things. But actually grace is the antidote to, 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 to both. Because if I, if I somehow ride both those rails, I'm going to end up in the wrong place. Grace says, if I'm somebody who's legalistic, Grace says, no, no, Grace is God helping you and you can't help yourself. Well, some of you might be like, well, man, I just live however I want. No, no, no. Grace is God helping you because when you are yourself, you need help. You see how it's the antidote? It's like, which one's right? Grace. <laughs> which one's right? The gospel. Well, who's right? Jesus? It's like, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, let me give you another one. Just th think about this, because some of you are nervous about this. Grace is the antidote to lazy dependence. But it's also the antidote to arrogant independence. 
I had somebody say this, they asked me this week, I love this, but they asked me, like, well, you're going to preach about this week. And so I told them, and, and uh, they said, oh, that'd be great. And then they said, but, but, but here's the deal. If God doesn't help those who help themselves, doesn't that give people the license to be lazy and accept handouts? And they were talking, politically speaking, you know, all these social programs, you know, they were going down this rabbit hole. And here's what I think. I think quite the opposite, honestly. I actually think quite the opposite. A sign that I've accepted the gift of grace is this. Now my entire life is an act of worship or a response to the one who gave me that gift. All of my life, my work, every relationship is an act of worship to him. Every part. Lazy dependence that will not do anything an arrogant independence that thinks that the sole reason for everything they are the sole reason for everything that they have. They actually are two sides of the same coin. Did you know that? Like lazy dependence, I'm not going to do anything, lift a finger, I'm just going to take handouts. And arrogant independence, well, I'm a self-made man and look at what I've accomplished, are two sides of the same coin. Like, yeah, they're related. And the coin is ungratefulness. Honestly. It demonstrates that I haven't fully embraced and recognized the gift that God's given to me. No matter whether I'm lazy, won't lift a finger. Imagine, imagine just, just this, is a, this illustration probably breaks down, but imagine you can't afford a car and you need a car to get to work, you need a car to exist, you, and you can't afford, imagine, well, no, this is imagine, okay? because I'm not doing this, right? But imagine I went out and bought you this $25,000 brand new car. Shiny, awesome, brand new. And I just brought to your house, said, hey, I, I know you can't afford a car. I wanted to get you a really good car, one that's gonna last you for a lot of years. Imagine I brought you this car. Well, imagine if on, on one hand, you, you took the car and away I went, and imagine you never took care of the car. Imagine a year later I come by and the thing's, you know, got flat tires and it's rusty and wind is broken out. And... Well, what's that an indication of? So I, I would feel, well, I'd be like, did you recognize the gift that I gave you? Like, <laughs> I gave you, like, something you could never afford on your own. But imagine, on the other hand, if I came by and I listened in as you were talking to your neighbors and you were talking about this new car that you got. And this new car that you purchased and how cool you are because you drive this new car. And I'd be like, I thought I got that for you. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's the same coin. They're, they're, they're closer than you think. And grace, grace is the antidote. It's the medicine. I'm not going to be lazy because my entire life is a response to the gift that he's given me. I honestly think those who recognize that they're going to they're be the hardest workers, the humblest people, right? They're going to do what they can do. But I'm, I'm not going to be a, I'm a self-made man. Look at what I, I'm like, I'm going to recognize, humbly recognize what God's given to me that I could never do for myself. See how that works? Last one, and then, then we're done. Grace is the antidote to naive enablement, but it's also the antidote to critical stinginess. Here's what I mean by that, and then let's be done. We sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Like some of you know that song, right? 
We sing it in church. We love grace. We love amazing grace in a church service. But sometimes that amazing grace that we love in church doesn't make its way home with us. Because the amazing grace, we love that God saves a wretch like me, that God helps me when I can't help myself. But when we get home and we see the neighbor who's struggling to make ends meet or the woman in the store who's fumbling around with her food stamps holding up the line that we want to get through, we get frustrated somehow. Because if they would just buck up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, it can create a critical judgmental stinginess. On the other side, we can enable people who could be working and realize we're not really helping them. God's help to me was real help. He was not encouraging me in a situation that put me in the spot in the first place. You see, here's the deal, guys. Either grace, grace is not just some theoretical term that we sing about in church. But this idea of God helps those who can't help themselves, you ready? Look at this. It's the glasses that we put on that affect the way we look at all of life. By grace, we are saved through faith. By grace, we're seated with Christ. And because of grace, we're his poem. In all of our life, the way we interact with others, the way we do our job, the kind of a uh, citizen we are in our community is a masterpiece that points to the incredible qualities of the author of the poem of grace, God himself. So God, what, what, a, neat, what, what a neat challenge for us because quite frankly, much of this runs against the cultural stew that we've been drinking for quite some time. And uh, God, I pray for some that are listening that have never said yes to your gift of grace found in Christ, that they would embrace your love, your kindness and mercy found in Christ and what he did for them on the cross. And that right here listening to this particular service, they would say yes to Jesus. God, I pray for a whole bunch of people listening to this that would Say they've embraced that, they love singing about that, that, Father, this would be a conversation that would allow for them to wear those lens home, to wear those lens into work, to wear those lens wherever they have influence, to wear those lens where they shop and play, the teams that they're involved in, that we would see people different because we are recipients of something we could never earn, achieve, and even deserve on our own. And I pray we would reflect you in the process. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.